Merciful Father, forgive us. For we have taken your good gifts of creation and we have cast them aside. We've taken your image within us and have distorted it almost beyond recognition. Yet in your mercy, you have sent your Son to redeem the creation, to renew your image. Lord, we pray that you would sustain us in that image today by the presence of your Spirit and your eternal Word. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Brothers and sisters in Christ, in the Lewis Sackar novel Holes, in the movie by the same name, we're told the story of Stanley Yelmatz, the fourth, whose family name is really his first name backwards. Stanley Yelmatz, the fourth, is wrongly accused of a crime and is sent away to a youth detention camp to do hard labor. And according to the story, the reason Stanley has such bad luck is that he is the inheritor of a fourth-generation curse because his great-great-grandfather stole a pig. For many Christians, that's how we look at the story of Genesis chapter 3, that we humans have inherited an ancient curse because our great-great-great-great-great-grandfather stole an apple. This kind of interpretation has increasingly become difficult for modern people to buy. We stand, we think, as individuals. How could the actions of someone thousands of years ago possibly have any effect on me? And yet, as modern people, we're perfectly happy to accept theoretically that we've inherited our great-grandmother's nose, our great-great-grandfather's genetic disposition toward baldness, or our mother's alcoholic tendencies. We can see how, in our culture, the genocide of the Holocaust or the inhumanity of slavery can have an impact on whole communities of people, even generations later. And so, as we look at Genesis chapter 3, I think we need to look at it not simply as the story of two isolated individuals making private choices several millennia ago. We need to read Genesis chapter 3 as our story. Immanuel Kant cites that old literary dictum, under a different name, this story is about you. We are all Adam, sharing in his rebellion. We are all children of Eve, sharing in her curse. Just how that works out, the theologians have debated for thousands of years, Augustine and Pelagius had words over this interpretation. And yet there's a stark fact that remains after all the theological smoke clears. Sin is part of the human condition. Sin, as Reinhold Niebuhr likes to point out, is the only Christian doctrine that can be empirically verified by simply picking up the newspaper. History itself speaks of the enormous impact and the pervasive character of evil in the world. 
And Genesis chapter 3 serves as a vivid account of the skeletons hidden at the back of the human closet. This account stands to remind us that even our sin has cosmic dimensions, that our choices affect more than just ourselves, that we're so woven together into the whole fabric of humanity that our actions have an impact on everyone and everything else in God's world. Author Gary Wills writes, we are hostages to one another in a deadly interrelatedness. There is no clean slate of human nature, unscribbled on by all one's forebears. At one time, a woman of unsavory enough experience was delicately but referred to as having a past. The doctrine of original sin states that humankind, in exactly that sense, has a past. Part of the reason that we've taken three whole months to get through Genesis chapters 1 and 2 in order to get finally to this story of human rebellion, and some of you have really been chomping at the bit to get to sin, part of the reason we've taken so long to dwell on our createdness is that we need to drive home once and again to our own minds for the benefit of our own theology, the goodness and dignity of God's creation. We need to have the idea of our image, of the image of God implant, uh, imprinted on us, firmly planted into our heads before we ever can appreciate the gravity of sin and the hope of redemption. It's far too easy for Christians to start the gospel with the fact of sin. 90% of the gospel tracts begin with, you are a sinner. But Scripture starts somewhere else. Scripture begins with the glory and goodness of our creation. Before we're ever told of human evil, we're reminded of human excellence. The same race then that gives us Hitler also gives us Johann Sebastian Bach. The human race produces both Machiavellis and Socrates, Stalins and Shakespeare's. We claim both to our benefit the cure for polio and the creation of nuclear weapons. This is the paradox of being human. Pascal wrote that we are midway between angels and the wild beasts. And C.S. Lewis pointed out that to be descendant of Adam and Eve is both honor enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on earth. And we all know something of this duality in our everyday experience. We long for shalom. We long for the harmony of God's paradise. And yet we feel ourselves continually pulled in another direction, in the direction of self-rule and autonomy. Notice God's first dignifying words to the human being, implying the vast freedom given to humanity with one restraint. You are free, God says. You are free to partake of all the trees in the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you must not eat. 
For as surely as you partake of that tree, you will die. This tree represents boundaries, something we often dislike. This tree represents a willingness to let God be God, a willingness to submit to God's rule. Scripture reminds us that God sets up boundaries for humans not because God is mean and arbitrary, but because God is the creator. And as the creator, he knows better than we what is best for us. When a parent says to a five-year-old, you can go outside and play, but don't go out into the street. It's not because there's something inherently evil in the street. It's not because parents are by nature mean and malicious. The rule is established because the parent knows better than the five-year-old what the potential dangers of the street are. This rule exists as a reminder of the parent-child relationship that has expectations, that there are boundaries, that there is a covenant of trust between parent and child. This tree in the middle of the garden isn't magical, it's not inherently evil, but it does stand as a sign, as a symbol of humans' willingness to live within God's boundaries, a willingness to let God be God, and for the human to exist in proper covenant relationship with their creator. It's not simply a tree of knowledge, as some people suggest, as if God is somehow anti-intellectual, that the problem is humans learning. The implication is not that knowledge is itself evil. This tree represents uh, instead comprehensive knowledge that is good and evil, the bookends of the universe, knowledge of everything from A to Z. In other words, this, knowledge, this tree represents knowledge that is available only to God. Of course, human beings already know good. They know it as part of God's good creation. But they, to have intimate knowledge of evil without being infected by it is impossible for finite creatures. Some things have to be left to God. The introduction of the serpent into the story sets the creation in a radically different direction. The snake is described as more crafty than all the other creatures. It's important to remember that this is another creature, not some equal deity, not some dualistic, malevolent being who is co-equal with God himself. This is a creature under God's jurisdiction, under God's sovereignty. And for the original Hebrew audience hearing this story for the first time, the serpent as a character is full of rich symbolism. The Hebrew word for serpent, nahash, is etymologically identical to the verb that means witchcraft or sorcery or divination. This, this snake then stands for the Israelites as a representative of all the false religious claims of Egypt and Babylon all the pagan visions of life, the, the temptation to pursue false gods. You'll remember even the diadem of Pharaoh, the headdress, has this symbol, this serpent, 
speaking of his divinity and his royal power. And serpents, of course, figure prominently in pagan mythology. They come as symbols of immortality, symbols of wisdom, and finally symbols of chaos. And surely the Israelites would not have missed the irony in this story. This serpent comes offering both immortality and wisdom, but the result is chaos. The deceiver wastes no time in the story. He begins with what is tantamount to a jeer or a scoff. So, has God really said, you may not eat from any tree in the garden? How preposterous, how arrogant. What gives him the right to restrain you? And so there's a seed of doubt planted, not about God's truthfulness or even about God's existence. The doubt is a doubt of God's goodness. We often don't think about it in these terms, I suspect, but it might be that this doubt is the most subtle and dangerous form of doubt. When C.S. Lewis lost his wife to cancer, he found that he didn't have doubts about God's existence. He had doubts about God's goodness. He wrote, Not that I'm in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all, but so this is what God is really like. Deceive yourself no longer. You see, atheism is too obvious. The tempter is subtle. He doesn't thunder into the garden with hooves and horns and pitchfork and announce, there is no God. But instead, he comes in more subtle ways. He comes in the guise of a theologian. Because the serpent begins what is recorded as the first conversation about God, rather than a conversation with God. It suggests really only a slight variation in interpretation on God's word. The suggestion is, I wonder, I wonder what God is holding back. I wonder, does he really have your best interest in mind? In prohibiting this thing, what is God keeping from you? And so by wondering out loud about God's motivation, the serpent suggests that God be, might be something less than benevolent. Why would God create something good and then tell you not to touch it? You've heard that one before. Thus the idea is planted that God might be jealous. He might be self-protective. He might be spiteful. Has God really prohibited you from eating any of the trees in the garden? The woman can't resist. She's been drawn into a theological debate. And in the process of joining this conversation about God, she makes several, in a, several errors. The obvious and appropriate response of the woman would be to say, I don't know the answer to your question. 
let's ask God. But instead, the woman decides to engage in a bit of creative theology herself. Well, actually, we're free to eat from any of the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the fruit in the tree of the tree in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. Even though the woman admirably comes to God's defense, she's got caught up in she's she's gotten caught up in the thrill of theological speculation about God. And she begins to embellish his words. She says, you must not even touch the tree. So this is not only the first example of speculative theology, this is the first example of legalism, trying to out-God God. Out of religious zeal, good people turn God's basic and wholesome commands into a complex system of prohibition. Well, if God says don't do X, then maybe it's better for me not to do Y or Z. And the inherent danger is that we shift morality from a covenant relationship with our Creator, where we obey because God is our God and we are His creatures. We shift to a contrived system of rule keeping. Legalism makes the error of identifying sin with the thing being avoided and not the God we have offended. You see, the problem is the movie theater. The problem is dance. The problem is alcohol. And the farther you can plant yourself away from those things, the holier you are. The system forgets the God of the covenant. And so the woman has forgotten God in the picture. And she is now confusing evil, not with breaking a relationship, but with the tree itself. And so the creation account stands as a reminder, even before we get to Genesis 3, the creation account reminds us that things are good. Things are made by God. The world belongs to God and everything in it. Biblical holiness, then, is in relation to our use of things, whether we use them as God intended. The serpent perpetuates the notion that the tree somehow contains secret power. He says, you will not really, really die. In other words, even if you die, it won't be a complete death. For God knows that when you eat of this tree, your eyes will open up. You will awaken to new life as God's. The promise of the deceiver is that if you die as a human being, you will be reborn as a God. Cast off God's authority. No longer permit him to rule your life as a mere imager of God. Instead, you will become your own deities, rulers of your own destinies. Small price, small price really. Endure the intrusion of evil and the agony of death 
in order to call your own shots in your own little world. Milton's Paradise Loss puts these words in the mouth of the devil. Better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven. And that's it in a nutshell. So the woman looks at the prohibited tree in a new light, noticing that the fruit is both pleasing to the eye and good for food and desirable for gaining wisdom. I've regularly heard preachers suggest that this threefold attraction is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life mentioned in 1 John chapter 2. But I think a closer look at the text reveals something more subtle. In Genesis chapter 2, we're already told that when God created the fruit trees, that they were both good for food and pleasing to the eye. In other words, God intentionally made his world both beautiful and robust. And so what the woman first notices when she looks at the fruit is the way God made it, the created goodness of this thing. But she is now seeing it in a different light, not simply as a gift from God, but as a thing to be manipulated for her own benefit. Because this tr fruit tree is not only attractive and good for health, she now thinks it is the secret to divine wisdom. Temptation is always the distortion of something good. It's always just a slight twist on something created by God. It's the assumption that a thing in creation can give me some benefit that only God himself can provide. This act of embezzlement is going to finally make me secure. This sexual encounter is going to take away my loneliness. This drug is finally going to make me happy. In short, the essence of sin is idolatry. Attributing to something in creation a quality that could only belong to God. Because unconditional love, personal security, happiness, wisdom can never ultimately be found in any created thing. These things can only be found in God. John Donne once wrote poignantly, O Lord, thou hast set up many candlesticks in the world and kindled many lamps in me but I have either blown them out or carried them to guide me in forbidden ways. It's important to remember, it's important to note that when the serpent speaks, he's using a plural form. He's not simply talking to one person. In fact, he is addressing both the woman and her oddly silent husband. The text says that the woman took the fruit ate it, gave it to the man. And at that moment, the man also has a choice. According to Genesis chapter 1, human beings were created as a unique image of their creator in order to take dominion over creation. 
And in chapter 2, the image of God is revealed as a capacity for covenant relationship between husband and wife. And so you have two aspects of the image of God, dominion and relationships. The sin of this first couple is to violate these two shared aspects of the image of God. Notice that the woman is free to exercise dominion, but here she oversteps her boundaries by taking dominion outside of God's command. The man exercises his relationship, his capacity for relationship, but here given the choice between a relationship with God and a relationship with the woman, well, you know how that turns out. He chooses to stick with his bride in her rebellion rather than keep faith with God. And so the image of God is violated and broken on two counts. And everything is changed. Dominion has become distorted. Relationships have become twisted. And the reaction of this first couple is their own recognition that something is desperately wrong. They cover themselves up with leaves and they hide from God in the forest. Mark Twain once said, the human is the only creature who blushes or needs to. Suddenly, they realize that they're vulnerable and without protection. Creation is now a threat. God is a threat. The man and the woman realize that they are even a threat to one another. Their vulnerability has become a liability. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, Adam and Eve couldn't look at each other anymore. They especially had trouble looking into each other's eyes for fear of what they might see there. It's become far too easy for us to use this story to justify blaming sin on someone else. If it only, if it w only weren't for the woman, if it weren't for Adam, we wouldn't be in this mess. And as we will see next week, this blame game has become almost instinctive for human beings. Men have blamed women. Others like to point to the serpent. The devil made me do it. It's even possible to blame God, but not recommended. Genesis 3 intends to place responsibility for sin where it really lies, squarely in our laps. We human beings are guilty of missing the forest for the tree. We misuse the divine gift of creation. We distort the blessings of God's world. And we choose autonomy. We choose to rule our own lives. One of the risks and dangers of choice. In the controversial film Dogma by Kevin Smith, we're given a portrait of two disgruntled angels who seek to challenge God and destroy creation once for all. At a key moment in the movie, we overhear one of these heavenly creatures complain, in the beginning it was just us and him, angels and God, and then he created the humans, and he gave them more than he ever gave us. Ours was designed to be a life of servitude and worship, adoration, but he gave the humans more.
he gave them a choice. They can choose to ignore God, choose to acknowledge him. But it's the humans, always the humans. They were given paradise, and they threw it away. They were given this planet. They destroyed it. They were favored best among all his endeavors. And some of them don't even believe he exists. This is the bad news that makes us ready to hear the good news of the gospel. Until we recognize in ourselves both the story of creation and rebellion, we will never be ready to embrace the hope of redemption. G.K. Chesterton was once asked to write an article for an English journal with the title, What's Wrong with the World? He sent back to the editors a two-word essay. What's wrong with the world? I am. But thanks be to God, this is not the end of the story. In Advent season, we're reminded that the promised one, the second Adam, whose obedience can bring light into the darkness and life for all those who have been condemned to death. This is what we wait for. St. Augustine once exclaimed, O oh, happy fault that deserved for us such a great Savior. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.